0: This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, which is undergoing an extensive renovation to create more exhibition galleries, community and event space, a cafe, and more. See all the changes coming at virginiahistory.org.
1: Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us for season five of the How We Got Here podcast. We are thrilled to be back in your feeds. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa, podcast enthusiast, sports nut, longtime investigative journalist. That's me in a nutshell. I work for both NBC 12 and the national outlet Investigate TV, and I am joined by a fantastic team digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly, And we have a new addition this season, photojournalist Dan Hefner, doing some touch-up editing for us. You'll remember Dan from our Churchill Tunnel Collapse bonus episode. You know, the dude traipsing through the woods, trying to find a tunnel. Let's get right down to it. This first episode is a little heavy on criminal justice stories, but it just so happens, that's what made news in history this week. And I also think it's quite timely. So we're going to take you from the wrongfully accused to a witch trial. You're going to want to hear this one. Let's not drag this out any longer. Ticking clock, please. I literally just called for a sound effect that I am going to edit myself. We are turning back the clock on the week of July 5th through the 11th. July 6, 2017, Virginia's final execution. 35-year-old William Morva dies by lethal injection. He was the last person ever brought into Virginia's death chamber at Greensville Correctional Center, the last to be strapped to a gurney and given lethal doses of drugs, the ultimate punishment for horrendous crimes. Virginia has now abolished the death penalty, the first state in the South to do so.
0: We joined
1: 22 other states in saying the government will not take a life,
0: the government will no longer execute people.
1: Morva's death would be steeped in controversy Was he mentally ill when he killed a sheriff's deputy and security guard? It's a question I've asked myself because I was there nearly every step of the way in the criminal process, from his arrest all the way to death row. I will never forget the day I learned his name, the first time Virginia Tech was shut down for a shooting in 2006. William Morva grew up in Midlothian, Virginia. His dad moved the family to Blacksburg. After his father's death, Morva was known as a drifter around town. He was often seen without shoes, wandering the streets. His hair, just a little too long, scruffy. He looked like he hadn't bathed in days. And in 2005, he was picked up by police for attempted armed robbery of a local deli. A year later, while waiting in jail, Morva was taken to Montgomery Regional Hospital for a sprained ankle and wrist. How exactly he was injured is still an unknown to this day. It was August 20th, 2006. William Morva never had shackles on his legs because of that ankle injury. At some point, Morva asked to use the bathroom. And this is what the part that's really under investigation. Paul says Morva somehow ripped a toilet paper dispenser out of the wall. It still had the screws on it and he used it as a weapon against the deputy. That's me, reporting from Blacksburg in 2006, describing the moment Morva escaped from the hospital and this manhunt began. He beat Deputy Russell Quisenberry unconscious With that toilet paper dispenser, he took the deputy's gun and shot hospital security guard Derek McFarland in the face. McFarland was running toward the commotion to help this deputy. The 32-year-old father and husband died, giving his life to protect others in the hospital. I heard countless times, Derek was such a good man. Morva was free on the loose in Blacksburg with a gun. Everyone was looking for him. What would become a 37-hour manhunt was on. The day after the escape, Montgomery County Corporal Eric Sutphin jumped on his bicycle to investigate a tip about a Morva sighting. He was riding his bike on the Huckleberry Trail William Morva came up behind him and fired one shot into the back of his head, execution style. Eric never saw it coming. I was at home that morning getting ready for work when the call came in about an officer down. I rushed to the Sheriff's Department, and I'll never forget Sheriff Tommy Witt looked right at me and said, it's Eric, Rachel. It's Eric. I'd met Eric Sutphin. Moments later, I was on live TV and I broke the news to the community in an impromptu press conference. It was the first time I'd ever cried on live TV. I lost all composure. I knew Eric Sutphin had been a survivor of a prior shooting in May, 2003. Which killed a fellow officer. I knew Sutphen had quit the police force at that time, only to return about six months later. At the press conference, I learned he was survived by his wife and nine year old twin daughters. Right now, tech officials are asking students to stay in their dorm rooms. Morva's escape prompted a shutdown of Virginia Tech's campus on the first day of fall semester. I was on live TV for much of the day, at one point hiding behind a tree because of a false sighting of Morva on campus. Hours after the second murder, deputies found Morva hiding in a briar patch about 150 yards from where he killed Corporal Sutphen. Almost immediately, prosecutors announced they would be seeking the death penalty. He was diagnosed initially with schizotypal personality disorder, but the judge deemed him competent to stand trial. I was interviewed by fellow reporter Drew Wilder a few years ago about how Morva acted in that courtroom. We were right behind him, and he would turn around and make gestures at us. What kind of gestures, what was he doing? He would point at us, he would talk to himself, in the middle of what proceedings and what was going on. He was always very wide-eyed.
2: Did it feel like an act to you?
1: Of course, we all questioned that. We, we all thought, is he trying to appear mentally unstable or is he mentally unstable? And I got the distinct feeling that there was something was not right. I don't see someone holding that act up for that long.
0: At that point, I sort of started questioning Uh, Will's sanity.
1: This is an excerpt from a two-minute documentary-style film produced to convince the governor to spare Morva's life. You see, by the time we got to his date with death, a scheduled execution in 2017, Morva's case had attracted international attention with death penalty opponents and other advocates calling on Governor Terry McAuliffe to halt the execution.
0: We now know that he could not understand the difference between his delusions and what everyone else knows to be reality. As mental health professionals and citizens of the Commonwealth, we ask Governor McAuliffe to commute Mr. Morver's death sentence to life in prison without the possibility of parole.
1: That was Bruce Cruiser, the executive director of Mental Health America, Virginia. Robert Reed with the National Alliance for Mental Illness also spoke out.
0: Mr. Morva has a severe delusional disorder. It was a disorder he had at the time that he committed the crimes that placed him in this position, and that was not adequately explained to the jury at the time of sentencing.
1: Morva's lawyers said the same thing, that jurors did not know the severity of Morva's mental illness and the part it played in his crimes. More than 20 lawmakers, at least two Virginia congressmen, and representatives of the United Nations asked McCulloch to spare Morva's life.
2: I have to, as governor, enforce the laws and the books of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I personally do not support the death penalty, but as governor, I took the oath of office. But if there are reasons that something happened during the trial phase or other issues, I look at that very carefully.
1: In the biggest twist of fate, the daughter of Corporal Sutfen expressed her support for Morva's clemency petition and asked the governor to spare his life. In the end, McAuliffe, the only person with the power to stop the execution, chose not to. Morva had no final words. His head would tilt up a little bit and it would tilt back down. And you could see the collar of his shirt shaking. And then a short time after that, he started gasping for air his stomach came out and then contracted pretty dramatically he was pronounced dead at 9 15 p.m on july 6 2017. you just heard from drew wilder who witnessed the execution as a member of the media there was a small group of protesters outside greensville correctional as the execution was carried out
0: to me the death penalty is not about what the perpetrator did. The death penalty is about who we are as a people and how do we as a people respond to violence in our midst.
1: Sutphin's daughter would later write about the death penalty. This outdated practice tends to bring more harm to victims' family members than providing us any comfort or solace. July 6th, 2017, William Morva becomes the last person to be executed in Virginia, a state that has put to death nearly 1,400 people since its days as a colony. In modern times, 112 men and one woman electrocuted or given a lethal cocktail since 1976. The Commonwealth, now one of 23 states, to ban the practice, leaving Morva's death as a question mark rather than a period. The fine line between civilized justice for the mentally ill and a convicted cop
0: killer. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Everybody's just super peaceful, and I think folks just want to be a part of the history and the change that's happening in our city.
1: For the former capital of the Confederacy, change rarely comes easy. Or quickly. But during a year unlike any we saw before, change was swift in 2020. In just a matter of days, nearly all of the Confederate statues along historic Monument Avenue came down, many of them fixtures of the neighborhood that stood for more than a century. The undersides of the bronze behemoths and the surface of the granite they sat upon finally exposed to the air. The imprint those figures of the lost cause left behind on their pedestals a grimy outline surrounding a clean slate. What many in the River City saw is a first step to ushering in a new era of justice and reform, or at least an era without those gigantic reminders of a time when not every person in this city was equal or had a say about who sat upon those pedestals this is great, this is something to celebrate, but it's also just one of many steps that need to be taken in our city. July 7th, 2020, the statue of James Ewell Brown Stewart, more commonly known as Jeb, the most animated of the monuments in Richmond, comes down. The vast majority of the Confederate men and their horses appear regal and at attention for a bronze eternity. But Stuart and his steed seemed to be coming to a sudden halt after riding at a full sprint, Stuart in full uniform with his signature hat and sword at his side. The statue that once stood more than two stories, now grounded, its former ferocity now hidden behind a veil, stored behind a fence at the city's water treatment plant until Richmond City Council decides what to do with it. And as city council has that final say in the future of Stewart's statue, it was also the government body that thought up the idea to memorialize the man. Immediately following Stewart's death in May 1864, council passed a resolution that got the ball rolling. But because the Civil War was raging on Richmond's doorstep, that process stalled for decades. In 1891, the Stewart Monument Association was created by Fitzhugh Lee, nephew to Robert E. Lee, and a former governor of Virginia, whose term ended the year before. A sketch of the monument was presented during a Confederate veterans reunion in 1896, and the next hurdle was where it would go. Originally, the desired spot was Richmond's Capitol Square to join the equestrian statue of George Washington. But a city councilman stepped in and donated $20,000 to put the statue, quote, anywhere but Capitol Square. In 1904, it was decided that the statue of Stewart would be placed in the middle of the intersection of Monument Avenue and Lombardi Street creating an early roundabout. It would take another three years before the statue was finally erected. May 30th, 1907. The pedestal made of Virginia granite in the shape of a sloping hill is topped with yet another Confederate general, a generation after the Civil War ended. Stuart was the commander of the Cavalry Corps of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. He died at the age of 31, after being mortally wounded in the Battle of Yellow Tavern, modern-day Henrico County, engraved on the stone beneath Stewart. Quotes such as, he gave his life for his country and saved his city from capture. The revered general Robert E. Lee announced Stewart's death to his Army of Northern Virginia eight days after Stewart's final breath. And an excerpt from that speech is on the north side of the statue praising Stewart's deeds and the, quote, inspiring influence of his example.
2: How can we move forward and how can we heal from the ills of our past?
1: The answer to that question posed by a Richmond City Councilwoman in July 2020 came from the city's mayor, who simply took the statues down. Jeb Stuart's monument stood for 113 years. It was dismantled in two and a half hours with a cheer of approval for many onlookers. They're just trying to appease people right now to distract from what's really going on. But I'm happy all the same. They have to come down, they're ugly, and they're a painful reminder for the black community. One group that takes pride in its Confederate roots the Virginia flaggers called the decision to take down the monuments destructive, referring to protesters as terrorists who would be rejoicing in the streets. July 7th, 2020. The third major Confederate statue in Richmond comes down in less than a week's time. The Confederacy dissolved in 1865 but its symbols remained in the former capital more than 150 years later. Striking visual reminders of the separation of a nation, a narrative of a lost cause, hiding the ills of slavery in plain sight. At that point in time, if they had told me that I killed JFK, I would have said I handed Oswald the gun. That's what U.S. Navy veteran Eric Wilson told a judge in his murder trial about his interrogation at the hands of police. He's one of four men convicted of a terrible rape and murder. Turns out, none of them did it. Saying you killed someone to police when you didn't is one of the hardest things for any of us to believe.
2: I hear that all the time. I hear someone say, under no circumstances would I ever admit to doing something that I have not done. Well, most human beings are never in a situation where they are isolated with authority figures who carry guns and who are threatening the death penalty. They are not in a situation where they have been yelled at, lied to, intimidated for hours upon hours. A human being has a limit and a human being will eventually break.
1: That's Mary Kelly Tate, the director of the Institute for Actual Innocence at the University of Richmond School
2: of Law. I founded this organization 15 years ago, and we have had multiple successes at the state and federal level. And I work with my students on these cases where we think someone is either factually innocent or that they have been overpunished.
1: Mary grew up in St. Louis, but she eventually went to law school in Charlottesville and graduated in 91
2: from the University of Virginia School of Law, and I came to Richmond to clerk for Judge Marriage in 1991. And that's how I became a Richmond resident. The way that I originally became devoted to this kind of work is Judge Marriage, soon after I left his chambers with co-counsel, appointed me to a federal habeas death penalty case and i got my first deep exposure to the problems in the criminal justice system with that case
1: mary kelly tate zoomed with us about what's now called the norfolk four a historic court case in virginia a two decades fight of four men to prove their innocence after being coerced into confessing It started July 8, 1997. Bill Bosco, a 19-year-old sailor in the US Navy, returned home after a week at sea to a shocking and devastating scene in his Norfolk apartment. He found the body of his wife. 18-year-old Michelle Moore Bosco. They had married just four months earlier. Bill and Michelle were high school sweethearts, originally from Pittsburgh. Michelle had been raped, stabbed, and strangled. After finding his lifeless wife, Bill Bosco ran to his neighbor's apartment for help,
2: and they called police. It was the kind of crime that completely mesmerizes a community, and often wrongful convictions occur. When a community has been traumatized in this way, And it leads to tunnel vision or overzealousness by um, investigators. And I think this is a classic case where investigators became single-mindedly focused on closing the case. And when there's that kind of urgency to close a case, all sorts of either sloppiness or wrongdoing can occur.
1: Police detectives began questioning residents of Michelle's apartment complex. What happens next is a winding tale over a series of months, sailors being pulled in for questioning. Some of those interrogations lasting eight, nine, even 11 straight hours. The men in that interrogation room are exhausted. They start to point the finger at each other. Eight in all are brought in for questioning and, in some form or another, are accused of killing Michelle. In the end, four men confess. 21-year-old Joseph Dick, 21-year-old Eric Wilson, 25-year-old Daniel Williams, and 27-year-old Derek Tice.
2: They are the Norfolk Four. And they're all young men, and they're all men who are uniquely susceptible to extreme tactics in an interrogation setting. Because when you think about it, they're military men, and they are primed and built to listen to authority and follow authority figures. So I don't think that can be overlooked here.
1: The Norfolk police detective in this case, who was doing a lot of the questioning, His name is Robert Glenn Ford. Remember it. We will talk about him much more later.
2: Detective Ford was dealing with four young men who were used to listening to authority. That's embedded in the military system. They were manipulated, they were mistreated. I believe one of them, it may have been uh, Mr. Williams. He was interrogated for eight hours straight by Ford. Detective Ford is legendary for his demeanor, which was known to be just incredibly intimidating. And this was a reputation he had.
1: Was it the confessions
2: that sealed their fate? Yes, absolutely. No question, because there really wasn't any physical evidence at all that tied them to these two crimes perpetrated against Ms. Bosco, the rape and murder. Yes, absolutely. And confessions just carry extraordinary weight. Anytime an individual makes a statement against interest, Whether it's in a criminal setting or in the workplace or socially, when people say something about themselves that is negative, people tend to immediately adopt that as true, and especially in a criminal setting. Confessions can completely overpower the direction of a case.
1: Mary Kelly Tate says about 30% of all DNA exonerations in the US involve a false confession. That's when the DNA says they didn't do it. None of the DNA evidence left at the scene of Michelle's murder matched any of these four men. No physical evidence tying them to this crime,
2: only their words. It is hard for people to believe what we do know about false confessions is that there are certain groups that are uniquely vulnerable for instance teenagers or children or very young adults are uniquely susceptible you know neuroscience right now tells us that the human brain doesn't really mature until about 25. additionally if people are in certain occupations or had a certain family history regarding authority figures, they might be more susceptible. People who are intellectually disabled are certainly more susceptible to making a false confession because people with intellectual disabilities sometimes have to move through the world appeasing authority figures. If someone has an anxiety disorder or depression, those folks could be uniquely susceptible But even beyond the groups that are more likely, human beings really need to look deep within ourselves and understand that each one of us has a breaking point. And if we were isolated, intimidated for hours and hours by authority figures, police officers, detectives, if we were lied to, you know, it's very common for police officers to give someone in a custodial interrogation false information about evidence and suggest to the individual that the individual may have blacked out. Oh, you're just not remembering perhaps that you did this heinous thing. You blacked out afterward. All sorts of tactics.
1: One tactic in particular used for interrogations is now under heavy scrutiny, but it once was in widespread use. It's called the Read Technique.
2: And it is built on a psychological approach, and that approach is meant to elicit feelings of helplessness in the person who is being interrogated. What that does is that can cause people to give information that is completely and utterly false. But by giving that information that's completely and utterly false, the individual is relieving that terrible sense of helplessness that the interrogators have purposely elicited in the person who is being interrogated. In the United States, When people say to me, I cannot believe someone would confess to something that they had not done, I often point to the Reed technique and say, well, in the United States, criminal investigators have used a system that is designed to create a sense of helplessness in the people that they're interrogating. So we shouldn't be too terribly surprised.
1: This is what landed the Norfolk Four behind bars. Based on those false confessions and under the threat of receiving the death penalty, Daniel Williams and Joseph Dick pleaded guilty to the rape and murder of Michelle. Derek Tice was convicted by a jury based off his confession. All three men received one or more life sentences without the possibility of parole. Eric Wilson was acquitted of murder by a jury, but convicted of the rape based off his false confession. He received an eight and a half year sentence. Three years after Michelle's murder, a fifth man, Omar Ballard, confessed to the murder and rape of Michelle Moore Bosco in a 1990 letter he sent to a friend from prison after being convicted on violent attacks on two women. He knew Michelle had met her at the apartment pool. His DNA linked him to the murder scene. He confessed to police and told them he acted alone. Despite the overwhelming evidence against Ballard, prosecutors were relentless in going after the Norfolk Four, pursuing their theory, this was a group crime. In 2000, Omar Ballard pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 100 years in prison. The only member of the Norfolk Four not sentenced to life, Eric Wilson, he served his eight and a half year sentence and was released from prison. It wasn't until 2009, 10 years later, that then Virginia Governor Tim Kaine gave conditional pardons to the remaining three members of the Norfolk Four still in prison. They were released, but not declared innocent.
2: And I would say that these individuals have raised serious doubt about their involvement or about the level of their involvement. But I do not believe that they have conclusively demonstrated that there is no possibility that they were involved in this crime. When you look at this case and you look at how many years it took to unspool it in the sense of making it right what you see is you see the absolute tragedy of our criminal justice system's preoccupation with finality and finality is a concept in law the notion being we've had a trial we've had an appeal this matter has been put to rest it is over it is final and of course, there's a legitimate reason that we cannot retry every case over and over again ad nauseum. Of course, we can't do that. But in a case like this, where very, very early in the arc of the case, you are seeing extremely troubling indicators that the law enforcement's theory and approach is not grounded in fact or reality, for it to take this long just shows how much work we need to do in terms of preventing this in the first instance, but correcting it more efficiently and more quickly than we do. And a lot of, I think, of the problem in terms of the slowness with which we remedy what are clearly botched cases is that the reputations of powerful people, either prosecutors or law enforcement, The reputation of those individuals is put above the liberty and dignity of the individuals who've been embroiled in these botched investigations and convictions, and that's terribly sad.
1: Governor Kane didn't take away the convictions.
2: The conditional pardon is not a true exoneration. It's grace. It's a governor saying, okay, you've served enough time, we are going to give you grace. But an absolute pardon is a true assertion that this has been wiped clear from your record. You are innocent of the charges for which you were convicted, and hence the word absolute.
1: It wasn't until 2017, nearly two decades after Michelle's murder, that the Norfolk Four were given an absolute pardon by then-Governor Terry McAuliffe. In a statement, Governor McAuliffe said these pardons close the final chapter on a grave injustice that has plagued these four men for nearly 20 years. The city of Norfolk paid the four former sailors $4.9 million. The state doled out another $3.5 million. Michelle's parents, John and Carol Moore, told CNN shortly after the pardons that they still believe the four men are guilty. In a written statement, the Moore said, each of these men have confessed by trial or by taking a plea. How can an innocent person admit to such a heinous crime and accept a jail sentence if they were innocent? That detective I told you to remember, the one who interrogated the Norfolk Four, Robert Glynn Ford, he's now 67. And an inmate in the federal prison system. We later learned he'd been disciplined for obtaining false confessions in multiple previous cases. In 2010, Detective Ford was convicted of receiving payments from criminals in exchange for getting them freed on bond or helping reduce their sentences. He never confessed, but a jury found him guilty and he was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison. He's scheduled to be released in October of 2021. What is the Norfolk Four's legacy?
2: Well, it's deeply tied to Detective Ford. It's deeply tied to what really exposed a culture that was deeply problematic, overly aggressive, self-protective, reputation-bound, that it was an insider, clubby group that was going to protect itself. And it also exposed this very, very dangerous element in law enforcement, which is careerism. And when a woman tragically gets raped and murdered the way Ms. Bosco did, it can light on fire a community and it can make collide careerism, community panic, a rush to judgment.
1: July 8, 1997. A young woman is brutally raped and murdered near a prominent naval base. Four sailors were placed in a room and mentally beat down until they confessed to crimes they did not commit. The real killer eventually revealing himself, but not before these men spent years of their lives in prison. The powers that be, digging in their heels to be right, not just, just right. Her hands are tied, her feet bound. She's put in consecrated waters, usually a local pond or river as a mob gathers. They throw her in. If she floats, she's using magic. If she drowns, she's just a woman. A torturous interrogation, a public humiliation. Because everyone knows
0: this is how you spot a witch. She's the only person in the records in Virginia who was ever put through the ducking test.
1: On July 10th, 1706, midwife, healer, and farmer, Grace Sherwood, agreed to a ducking, an unusual legal procedure meant to conjure up the truth about a witch. It all sounds so silly now, But this is the reality and brutality of the sexism women faced in the late 1600s, all in the name of witchcraft.
0: You know, we have his story. His story, particularly in the colonial period, is written by men. It's his story. Most of the time, I mean, men don't really write her stories. So we don't know everything about her story. We only know what men wrote about her. Women's stories are between the lines of what men are written. That's
1: historian Nancy Egloff of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. She's made it a sort of mission to tell women's stories. A 2019 exhibition for the 400th anniversary of Jamestown was called Tenacity,
0: Women in Jamestown and Early Virginia. We use the word tenacity because these women who are tenacious, they had to be tenacious to survive in these times. Also,
1: it's the perfect way to describe Virginian Grace Sherwood. She was
0: resilient. And her story is one of tenacity and resilience. She just, she just hung in there.
1: Grace was born in the colony of Virginia around 1660 to John and Susan White. We know nothing of her early life only the scribbled dates and
0: signatures of court record. In 1680, she married um, James Sherwood, who was not literate, but he was unskilled and was a small farmer. He didn't have his own land apparently, but her father seemed to like him. So when they married, her father gave James, not Grace, but James, the husband, some land to farm.
1: 50 acres to be exact, in what was once called Princess Anne County.
0: Her husband's farm was in the area of the Back Bay Wildlife Refuge today. So sort of southwest a little bit of Virginia Beach proper.
1: But the farm was struggling. James Sherwood was apparently not very good at it either. But there were issues with the economy in Virginia at the time.
0: The tobacco economy was not doing real well. So I think a lot of small farmers were not Doing well economically, and that caused social tension in the community. You can imagine and it does today. You know, look at our economic hardships today causing tension. She comes from just a small, regular family, nothing special.
1: She's someone you'd probably never know the name of had it not been for the accusations of witchcraft. Centuries later, in the 1970s, she'd be dubbed the Witch of Pongo. It was used as the title
0: of a children's book. So we really don't know why certain women were, let's say, picked on. Certain women just were accused, for whatever reason, of creating these incidences where there would have been a death of livestock or failure of a crop or even a miscarriage. A woman might have miscarried. And then the husband-wife accuses another woman of putting a spell on the livestock or the crops or the infant to be born. An accusation of witchcraft is a felony in Virginia, in the English colonies during this time period.
1: We know through court filings that sometime in 1698, Grace was accused of witchcraft because that's the year she actually sued several of her neighbors.
0: She and her husband, James, felt that her name had been defamed by these accusations. So they actually went to court first to try to clear her name.
1: One couple, James and Jane Gisburn, accused Grace of, quote, bewitching their pigs
0: to death and their cotton. And the other couple accused her, the wife of that couple, Elizabeth Barnes, accused her of coming into her one night and riding her. And one of the things that witches do is hag-riding. They ride a person, kind of like riding a broom or riding a horse. And so Elizabeth Barnes accused her of riding her and quote, went out the keyhole or crack of the door like a black cat, unquote. So not only did this woman accuse her of hag-riding, but she also accused her of one of the other characteristics of a witch, which is transforming herself into a creature like a cat. So she could slip out through a keyhole. Now she had to be quite a little cat to (laughs) slip out through a keyhole.
1: At the time, colonists believed in malfeasium, the intent to use demonic forces to cause harm. And remember, Witchcraft was a felony in the colony, which is exactly why Grace would sue first.
0: Apparently, in a number of the colonies from the 1650s to about the early 17-teens, there were any number of these slanderous accusations against women, and they went to court to try to clear their name. Slander and defamation actually are predecessors in many cases to witchcraft trials.
1: The Sherwoods lost those court cases. They even had to pay the court costs. Three years later, records show that her husband, James, died. They'd been married about 20 years when this happens.
0: So now she no longer has the protection of a male. Her father's gone, her husband has died, she's on her own, she has three sons. But after her husband died, the land that she had should have gone to her oldest son, who was of of age. For whatever reason, and people don't know why, it was reverted to the crown, so she didn't have her own land. The fact that
1: the crown basically took her land was bizarre.
0: Usually when a person dies without a will, which her husband did not have a will, it would have gone to the family and the oldest son was of age. So why he did not inherit it, she could not necessarily have inherited. She might have gotten some of it. Women didn't get a lot of satisfaction out of these things, but for the crown to take it, we don't know why. So does this have something to do with her reputation? That seems to not have been a very good one at that point. We don't know. Grace
1: never remarried, and the shroud of witchery never went away. Four years later, more accusations, this time from Elizabeth
0: and Luke Hill. She got into a fight with the woman Elizabeth Hill. Hill beat Grace Sherwood apparently. And so Grace again went to court for assault and battery against Elizabeth Hill. And she actually won this time, but she didn't win for all of the damages she was seeking. She was seeking 50 pounds sterling, and she only got one pound sterling. Speculation again. why? They found in her favor, but they may not have totally agreed.
1: The hills didn't give up. The next year, they took Grace to court, formally charging her with witchcraft.
0: The county court in early 1706 tried to find enough evidence. In the Virginia cases, the burden is on the accuser. So the Hills had the burden of trying to prove in some fashion, not just speculation. The judges don't like just pure speculation. They want some actual proof.
1: You see, the Salem witch trials were still very much on the minds of folks. And judges in Virginia didn't want to make quite as big a deal of witchcraft as they did in New England.
0: They wanted to use reason and proof and not go on supposition like the judges in in, uh, the Salem Witch Trials. Even in the 19th century, the writers who were writing about witchcraft said that Virginians did not prosecute witches or hang them like in New England because they had more common sense and good character. (laughs) So... (laughs) They just didn't want to go to that extreme.
1: So the judges, keep in mind, they're looking for proof, ordered what they called a jury of women to look at Grace's body and find evidence of witch marks. I'm not talking about a mole or a birthmark. They are
0: looking for little teats. Because witches, could have had what they call familiars, and a familiar is another creature. In the belief of witchcraft, the familiars will nurse or suckle at these spots on a witch's body. So that's one of the things they look for is strange, unusual marks somewhere on the body that are not natural.
1: Shocker here. Of course, they found two little marks. But the queen's attorney said that wasn't enough evidence, and they'd need to reinvestigate. So they went to her house looking for objects only a witch would possess. You know, puppets or wax figures, that sort of thing. We have no idea if they found anything. But soon after that search, we get to that hot Virginia day in July, where the court decides to put Grace Sherwood through the ducking test.
0: The supposition was that when a person was baptized, the baptismal waters accepted them into the church and they were blessed by God. If they defied their baptism, they were rejected by the baptismal waters. The ducking test is such that a person, a woman, a person is put in the water and if they sink, The waters are accepting them. See, they're baptized and they're not a witch. The waters are accepting them. A lot of the sources will say, well, they let the women drown, the poor thing. But actually, there were some men in a boat, floating in a boat nearby. And if she had sunk, they would have pulled her out. But if the woman floats, the waters are rejecting her. And therefore, she could very well be a witch.
1: So they took her to the Linhaven River, and FYI, today this area is known as Witch Duck Point. I'm assuming I don't need to explain how this name came about. Anyway, she was bound and thrown from a boat, and of course, she floated.
0: They had their proof and then they had another group of five women look at her again one more time and those women confirmed the two little spots the first group had seen. She was supposed to be put into the county jail by the sheriff and held until she could be transferred to Williamsburg for trial by the general court. And at that point, the records stop as far as her case goes. So we don't know if that ever came about.
1: It's believed Grace spent seven years in jail, though there is some debate.
0: We know by 1714, at least, she was released because she went to reclaim her lands that had been taken from her, and the governor gave her back her lands.
1: She fought off accusations of witchcraft. She fought to get her land back. She wasn't killed or even convicted that we know of for being a witch. There's only one word that comes to mind, and Nancy
0: said it earlier, resilient. She was resilient. She just hung in there. She wasn't just gonna sit by and let people keep accusing her. She took it to court to try to clear her name numerous times. And I think she was just a feisty woman who fought back against the culture of the time. Why do you think it's important for us to share a
1: story like this? in this day and age?
0: Well, because the fact that women are finally trying to find their voice. For so many centuries, they didn't have that voice. Men are writing based on their own interests, their own agenda, what they're trying to promote. And women are just in there, but not flushed out in any kind of way. So, you know, I ask a lot of questions about Grace. I say, was she a very outspoken person? Did she speak her mind? And people didn't like that. Was she not the demure little housewife that the community thought she would be? Was she not subordinate? Did she want to be independent? She did not remarry. My husband said, well, maybe nobody wanted to marry her, but anyway, (laughs) she had a reputation.
1: (laughs) The records stop after Grace got her land back. We know she returned to her home and farmed the land. She lived peacefully until her death in 1740, around the age of 80. July 10, 1706. A 46-year-old female farmer conjures up fear in the little Virginia town of Pongo. In 2006, Governor Tim Kaine found grace for Sherwood, restoring her good name 300 years to the day, she was ducked, releasing the so-called Witch of Pongo from the spell cast in the history books. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written by me, Rachel DePompa, and executive producer, Colton Weigley. As always, many thanks to Colton for all he does for this podcast, as well as digital director, Kate Albright. Five seasons later, we're still kicking. We don't hate each other yet. (laughs) And thanks to our guests this week, Mary Tate, the director of the Institute for Actual Innocence at the University of Richmond, and Nancy Eggloff, with the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. Next week on episode two, The Adventure of a Lifetime.
2: The surface appears to be very, very fine grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder.
1: Inside the day, Apollo 11 blasted off for the first manned mission to the surface of the moon.
2: That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
1: Plus, a decisive blow to the evil of segregation.
0: Get on the bus, sit any place, because Irene Morgan won her case.
1: The day a woman in Virginia refused to give up her bus seat more than a decade before Rosa
0: Parks. She said, quote, there was no court in the land
2: which would make me believe I was inferior to anyone.
0: And, He was a brilliant sailor. He understood how far a ship could be taken before it would
2: destroy itself.
1: How a Scottish-born pompous hero from the American Revolution gave us the beginnings of the U.S. Navy.
2: He is
0: arrogant, egotistical, self-righteous, but a brilliant man also who was years ahead of his time.
1: That's next week on episode two. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don’t mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. We have an Instagram account, How We Got here, VA. Follow us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at how we got here at NBC12.com. We’ll be back in your life next Monday.